I'm Joshua Sparrow, Executive Director of the Browson Touchpoint Center, and this is Learning to Listen, Conversations for Change, which is made possible by the generous support of the Burke Foundation, First Five Santa Clara, Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams Home Furnishings, and the generous support of friends and colleagues like you. On this episode of Learning to Listen, Conversations for Change, we'll be talking with Kyle Pruitt about listening to fathers, why fathers matter, and what it takes to build strong partnerships with them. We've got the chat box open, so please share your questions and comments for Kyle Pruitt with us. Dr. Pruitt is clinical professor of child psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine and a pioneering researcher on fathers and their children. In addition to publishing scores of scholarly articles, Dr. Pruitt has been talking with major media outlets for many years about fathers. He is the go-to guy about fathers. And he's also the author of award-winning books, including most recently, Partnership Parenting, How Men and Women Parent Differently, and How It Helps Your Kids and Can Strengthen Your Marriage, which he co-authored with psychologist, Dr. Marsha Klein. Kyle Pruitt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Josh. I'm delighted to be here. I, uh, I wanted to say something right off the top about my, um, my connection, the privilege of the connection that I had with Barry during his, his life. Um, I'm a child psychiatrist, but I started in pediatrics. And um, I think one of the things that got me eventually interested in fathering was the huge discrepancy between um, what children kind of credited their fathers with versus what the rest of us credit their fathers with. And Barry was one of the first people to ask me some serious questions about that. What did I mean? What did I see? How did I know what I was talking about? He was, um, <laughs> he, he interviewed uh, relentlessly when he thought uh, that you had an idea that would really be helpful to the field. So thanks to him. And I, I learned how to listen to a lot of things from Barry. Um, me too. <laughs> so I, um, I very much uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk with your audience today about uh, paternal engagement, what it means to our field. Um, many institutions and clinics are interested in being father-friendly these days. Um, it seems to be a, a timely topic. I think that's being driven by some interesting population dynamics and the number of men that are really interested in being closer to their children than they, their fathers were to them and the support that they're getting from their partners uh, to be engaged positively because the women are very happy to be working and also loving their children and being family people, but also liking the, the, the flexibility that comes with two very involved and engaged uh, parents. So I think it's a timely topic and we need all the help we can get thinking clearly in the context of the populations we work with. So I'd like to, start with a little science that I think might um, might sort of turn your topsoil on this topic a little because turn our topsoil. Uh, turn your topsoil. Um, so we'll look at the first slide. Thanks, Kayla. Um, first thing, how do children even experience men? Um, well, the first thing to be said is, is pretty obvious that fathers don't mother. Uh, they often try, by the way. Um, because they may not have very good models about how to go about doing it. Um, it's perfectly obvious that mothers don't father. Um, 
But apart from that, there are some very um, interesting, challenging uh, bits of information that we have been putting out from science for, for about 20 or 30 years that I think I want to share with you and put in your own hands uh, to do a little thinking. I just need to get a box out of my Zoom here so that I can see my own slides. Perinatal and early year behavior acknowledged as seminal. We all know that you're on this because you believe it. Um, if you're not an infancy junkie, um, I hope you'll be one soon because uh, the first thousand days have captivated us in ways that I would never have dreamed 40 years ago when I was uh, starting my training. But there are a few random challenges uh, that we now have to integrate into our understanding of early experience. One of the most interesting, a large perspective study on, um, on familial thyroid disease in Michigan uh, did full screen hormonal changes uh, on mothers and fathers. Um, and they, thankfully, they broadly swept uh, the field of their, 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 their subjects' um, uh, hormonal supplies and found some rather startling things that there were, were well aware of the rather startling hormonal changes that occur in women as they get close to delivery and toward the end of their, of their pregnancy. This study found some startling changes in men. Um, oxytocin, of course, the relationship hormone, um, and one of the ones that helps us understand uh, how it is that people get connected out of just the neurobiology of being close to other people and caring for them and touching them and being aware of their needs as they are of yours. Um, and it is well, well named as the, as the relationship hormone. It's very high in women. Perinatally, it is very high in men, maybe as high as it will ever be when they become fathers. Um, we have some evidence lately that even in adoptive fathers, uh, that oxytocin is on the rise at those moments, even though they may not be biologically connected. It's when they meet their infants and they begin their life together. Testosterone drops significantly. As one young father said, well, what do I need testosterone for? I have a baby. Um, estrogen levels go up and um, many men are surprised they even have estrogen circulating. But this combination of factors seems to sort of say, this is a sea change in your life. Neurobiologically, get ready for a very big event. And um, these are by and large very positive changes, especially the oxytocin. And I want you to be thinking already about uh, parental leave and paternal leave in particular, because to miss out on this biological window, um, it's not tragic, but it is a waste of a wonderful biological predisposition. Postpartum depression, known as uh, a scourge of an awful lot of mothers' early experience with their children. Um, and um, the, the reason I'm talking about it here is because of this, of the large um, epidemiologic study that was done in Brighton in England. Uh, the rate of paternal postpartum depression was frankly astonishingly high for every two women who had postpartum depression, there was one man who had postpartum depression. Quite important because her postpartum depression is not going to get better if you don't treat his. It looks slightly different. It comes on a little later. 
there are more involutional symptoms and more internal uh, than the externalizing symptoms. But if you don't look for it, you won't treat it. And um, uh, how often are we screening for it? Um, I want you to think about that because this is a treatable illness in a person that may have an awful lot to do with the well-being of that relationship with the mother and the child. Kyle, can you um, stop for just a moment and say a little bit about what involutional symptoms and externalizing symptoms Happening are? inside the body, um, sorry, yeah, happening inside the body, some sadness, loss of energy, um, uh, becoming less communicative. Uh, it's not about crying, it's not about rapid mood changes. It's sort of like a folding in uh, on yourself and on your own body because you've lost the energy uh, to be in a relationship with the people that matter. Um, one of the most interesting studies, and I had to read it three times myself to really believe it, father's vocabulary is a strong predictor than the mother's vocabulary of language competence at 36 months. Um, it's a wonderful study, very well done. And I hope you're puzzling about how in the world that could happen, because men don't talk, right? Um, and it turns out that they actually do, and when they do talk, they use less mother ease and less ugu gaga and, um, and just random noises, and are more likely to speak in full words and full sentences. Uh, sometimes the mothers, and the, particularly the mother-in-laws, think they're just wasting their time. But apparently the babies don't feel that way. And they are, there is something possibly, this is just my own hypothesis, that the intriguing nature of the difference in the conversational speech between the father and mother intrigues the infant and sure enough, when it comes time to do their own talking, they have something, um, they have something in their kit bag to actually talk about and understand. Because very young infants are very attuned to change. They're really paying attention to what was different than everything else I've experienced so far, because that's where they're learning. So your idea is not mm -hmm. that motherese or the way fathers talk is better or worse, but it's that when you put the, the dissonance together that it really um, intrigues the infant. It is the unexpected. The infants are hunters of the novel and their brains are open to it. And when we supply the right dosage, um, you get growth and integration and, um, and uh, synaptic uh, growth that prepares the child to learn. Um, finally, significance of the co-parenting partner in toddlerhood. Um, this is from Jamie McHale's wonderful work on co-parenting. And basically what Jamie found is that if a mother and a father have shared care and they have shared their experience of caring for the infant, toddlerhood's just gonna go better. And um, that's a good thing because toddlerhood is generally the Armageddon of co-parenting uh, because of the resistance, the no, the I'm not going to, the running away, um, naked through the dining room at Thanksgiving with full joy. And um, so if you are able to actually share solutions, bewilderment, joy, delight, discouragement, by the time you get to toddlerhood, you're gonna to be able to stay on your feet better than if you haven't had a strong co-parenting. So uh, I was gonna ask you about what co-parenting consists of, but in what you just said, it sounds like it's not just sharing changing the diapers, it's sharing the emotional experience. It's tag team in the life of a young family. It's, it's sharing not only emotions, but also 
um, sharing ideas and supporting each other in trying to be the best parent they can, even though um, you know they're doing it differently than you. One of the things that's hard on co-parenting is gatekeeping, uh, where one of the parents, uh, generally socialized to be the mother, has all the expertise and the expectations of her culture that she will do this perfectly right from the beginning, uh, which is a terrible burden. And, um, and yet um, she often feels like she has to have this go in a particular way, or she's going to be criticized, or she's going to not really be living up to her own ideals as a mother. And so when the father does something different with the baby, tosses it up in the air, holds it in a different way, not like this, but sort of tucked under the, under the arm and with the, against the upturned palm, the buttocks, and kind of walks through the world with the child as, as one father said, they use my hood ornament. And uh, that's the way I want him to be because I want him to feel me supporting him as he meets the world. Mothers often have a different idea about security. We'll talk about that later in the talk when we get around to talking about attachment. But co-parenting is definitely more than changing diapers, sharing uh, time, uh, doing house cleaning. It's the emotional uh, partnership that helps you get through a very tough time. Um, uh, and it's tough for all of us. Uh, the sleeplessness, uh, the loss of intimacy with your partner, marital satisfaction only goes one way when you become a parent and it doesn't recover for years. I try not to show that slide too often um, because it's very discouraging, but it is the truth. And um, it's helpful to parents to know actually that that's coming. And um, uh, one of the things that I think we as health providers could be doing a better job is helping couples realize that there's there's uh, there's some speed bumps ahead. Anticipatory guidance. Exactly. I've heard that phrase before. <laughs> next, next slide. Kind of thank you. Um, okay, so we've got some science that says, um, you know, children are capable of responding to men. What about men capable of responding to children? Very quickly. Michael Lamb, one of the early researchers um, in this field, large room, 800 graduate students, Ann Arbor, Michigan, showed them men, women, had them hooked up to skin galvanometers and EKGs. He was looking at heart rates, uh, blood pressure, and skin temperature. And uh, in reaction to three eight-minute videos of a colicky baby, I don't think we could get that through an HR committee now. But at that point, it was a way of looking and Michael was sort of wondering, maybe we should just look at the biological superiority of women's reactivity where it doesn't even go through the central nervous system, it just goes through the physiology and show why they really should have all the responsibility. And the reason I'm talking about it with you 40 years later is that that's not what it showed. The men and the women had very similar physiologic reactivity to that negative stimulus. Um, Abraham Sagi, a developmental psychologist in, in Tel Aviv, um, 24 newborns, um, when the mothers were able to get up and walk after delivery, had the mothers and the fathers uh, blindfolded and gave them earplugs and said, find your babies. And he used the father as the control. These were all biological parents. And uh, the reason we're talking about it is because the men were as good at it as the women. So um, I usually say at this point, men, your excuses are beginning 
to erode uh, that she does really truly uh, need to do it all. Um, next slide, Kevin, thank you. Um, another piece of interesting father-child interaction research that Michael did, he was looking at um, 300 families on the weekends. These were mothers and fathers who were both graduate students, so they're shared care, they shared care on the weekends. And he was interested in um, if there was any difference between infancy, toddlerhood, pre-K, when they were as comfort-seeking required as a result of the child's experience. Child's a crawler before the age of one, eight to, uh, eight to 11 months. Child misses a step, bangs a chin. To whom do they turn? Mostly the mother. Um, 11 to 15 months. It's about the same because they're up and around, their, mo their, their motility is so important to them. So if they get hurt, they bang, get the Band-Aid, any port in the storm, let's get back in the game. Uh, so um, there isn't a real distinction between the two. Interesting, 18 to 24 months, the fathers are often sought out as, more often sought out as comfort providers than mothers. What's going on in that period? Autonomy separateness from the mother. How can I be okay without her? He seems to maybe have figured out how to do that, and maybe he's got some secrets for me. I'm going to turn to him. Uh, this often is sort of hard on moms because they say he didn't deserve that. He hasn't been around. He hasn't done all the hard work. How come the kid's in love with the father and wants him, wants his help now? Um, other father-child interaction, uh, unique, uh, or at least trends that we see the importance of play in fathering. And I'm, I don't know if you've noticed, I've switched to talking about fathering. And I want to underline that for you. Because I'm not talking about, for pretty much the rest of the research, I will be talking about some biological fathers. But we are much more interested in the impact of the fathering figure, uh, the co-parent with the mother, the person she chooses to raise that child with. Um, Fathering behavior is, does not necessarily get owned by, by men, by the way, um, um, or biological. Biology helps, but it certainly doesn't guarantee, as we know from all the child abuse literature. Um, so I think the, one of the things we notice, particularly in the United States, and this is a cultural difference, American fathers spend a lot more time in play with their children than do, for example, uh, Nordic fathers or North, uh, Northern European ones who seem to be a slightly more serious bunch. But the fathers who play with their children are, are sought out by their children because the dads will often teach in the context of play. Mothers are less likely to be playful in their teaching and more often educationally focused. That last bullet point, strongly supported by partner support, the single greatest predictor of whether a father will be positively engaged in the life of the children is whether or not she thinks it's a good idea. Not his experience with his own father, not even his own wishes to be involved. It's whether she thinks it's a good idea. So our engagement with women in this discussion from the beginning is crucial. Um, and there are just as many women who are surprised by some of this science as, as there are men. So how does that work in same-sex couples? Is there um, commonly one parent who takes the role of sort of owning the expertise and may or may not encourage the other parent? Or 
Well, you've just stolen slide 16, yeah, Dr. Sparrow, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll go with it now. Um, what we have seen in same-sex couples, the work of Charlotte Patterson and uh, in lesbian couples and Ruth Feldman in, in gay couples, is um, a certain dimorphism where one of the parents is more playful than the other. And there are other kinds of dimorphism too that we'll discuss in a minute. But it does appear that these trends in behavior that I'm calling fathering are more supported by culture and role than they are by chromosomes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's, a, that's a very important theme in terms of thinking about fathering versus co-parenting, uh, which is a theme we'll come to when I talk a, a little bit about my own research later on. So is it fair to say that there are a set of tasks that two people raising a child together share and they get they tend to get divided up according to these two different forms well that's slide 17 and i'm okay. going to ask you to wait for that one josh because there are some surprises in it oh good okay next slide please Gail. um a few other zingers um newborn skin-to-skin -skin contact with fathers these are biological fathers compared to cot lying for the first two hours of life okay you have that picture Amazingly, with Ian, uh, these follow-ups were at three months. Again, we're going for the first two hours of life, lying for two hours, skin to skin with your father. Mother's otherwise engaged, uh, obviously. Um, and um, when the, whoever it is that needs to encourage it, and it's usually um, the, the delivery room nurse or midwife, has to set this up in a way that will make it work for everyone. Um, these children by three months of age are crying less. Uh, their wakefulness and their, their sleep and wake cycles are less chaotic. They're more organized. And they are doing less rooting as a source of, uh, um, of comfort. They also watch changes in the father that his, his paternal oxytocin levels go up significantly in that skin-to-skin -skin contact. That, not surprising, the skin is actually one of the places where oxytocin is produced in the body, not just several, one of several locations. Um, and that's why you get men who were previously maybe couldn't even get their way out of the cheap seats during prenatal classes and everything. Suddenly they are willing to lay down in front of a bus for their baby. Um, they say, most beautiful thing I have ever seen. This is a miracle. That's not always oxytocin talking, but it's oxytocin helping. Um, another change, uh, functional MRI responses to seeing pictures of one's own infant inside the magnet as opposed to other infants at the same age. Mothers, you'll see uh, a significant emotional activation in the amygdala. Fathers, you see some, but it's less dramatic than it is in the mothers. And what's more dramatic in the fathers is superior temporal sulcus activation, of course, which is the home of mentalizing networks. So it's as though the mother has done her mentalizing, carrying the baby inside her body. The father has catch up to do, and he's doing it, um, given half the chance. Next slide, please. Okay, well, thank you. Um, I'm going to talk about some of those trends that you were um, jumping the gun a little bit, Josh, when you were talking about 
you know, are there tasks and what are they? And here are some trends in mothering and fathering behaviors that I've isolated to talk about from, I'm sorry to say it's fairly mediocre science because we don't have fabulous science. So I wanna caution you about going too far down a road with this in your kit bag, but they are things that seem to make sense to us anecdotally. Um, preparation, prefer, preference for activation and stimulation versus soothing. You'll see this very frequently when mothers pick up their babies, they bring them here and they lean in and they allow for a moment of, of, of a collaboration between them and the baby. That is if they're not on their cell phone and they sit quietly, let the baby and then we were kind of attuned. Fathers, what's predictable about them is that what they're gonna do is unpredictable. They may toss the baby up in the air. They may roll the baby over. They may, and they're less likely to do this than they are to bring the baby uh, against the side and have them sit actually facing the world on the outside. So you'll see this preparation for activation. Babies like, fathers like to have their children activated and engaged with them. Mothers are happy to have the soothing and the quiet probably because they're probably more exhausted. Unpredictable versus predictable regulating style. I already talked about that. Preparation for place in the world versus relationships. This often shows up in discipline where you've got a child who is not listening, who's being um, um, really obstructionist and uh, the mother or the father is upset with the child. They've got to do something before dinner. And what happens is the mother and the child finally get to a place where nothing's gonna work. And the mother says to the child, you know, uh, you know, I'm done with you, uh, either emotionally or physically, or I've had it with this. And so she gets a little cold, uh, physically, uh, emotionally, she'll withdraw a little bit. She may be still, her heart may be still pounding, but she's not inter interacting in a positive, intimate way with the baby. So she withdraws emotionally. Fathers, when they get into it with their kids, are less likely to use the relationship and really emphasize more on knock that off. You'll never have any friends. Uh, you'll never get a job. Stop being a jerk. And I mean it now. And that's very different than uh, we're not friends until you behave. Uh, they're two different stories. And they're very important stories. They're both right. And this is one of those dimorphisms we see in lesbian and gay couples, by the way. Um, frustration tolerance versus facilitating. Uh, mothers are more likely to cut corners, tilt the playing field in the, in the, in the direction of success for their children. Fathers are more likely, and, and, and I know you, sound, you all know mothers and fathers who, where the roles are, are totally switched, but I'm talking about general trends, that the fathers are often more likely to sit back and not offer help as quickly, um, saying often he's going to have to learn to tie his shoes. Uh, they're not going to do that for him at college. He's got to learn how to do it. It's okay if we're late. It's a really important lesson. The mother harumps off and says, you're driving me crazy. But both lessons are very important. Next slide. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think we can move that on to the next slide. Um, at this point, I just want to remind you, um, I know there are many people in this, in the webinar audience, 
who have had some pretty negative experiences with men, particularly in the field of, um, of intimate partner violence in your clinical work, et cetera, we are not discussing violent or abusive fathers here, or arguing that because of all these other things, they should spend more time with their children. That is not what the basis of this discussion. Safety first, last, and always. We are discussing positive paternal engagement uh, as related to positive child outcomes. Next slide, Hannah, thank you. Just a word about who the families are that we're working with and how this co-parenting, parenting, parenting um, dynamic might work with who they are as a population. And this is a, this is a zero to three survey that was done of millennial parents who are now between 21 and 36 years of age back uh, a couple of years ago. Parenting seems more daunting for them than for their parents, and they relatively say that. They are more likely than their parents to say their children are their best friends, which might explain why they feel less effective as disciplinarians. Um, percentage of single parent-headed households has nearly doubled since the early 1980s, and um, nearly half of LGBT women under 50 have a child under 18, and a fifth of LGBT men have a child in their custody. Age of first-time mothers, now 26, it was 21 in 1970, and uh, three-quarters of mothers are in the workforce. All of those bullet points are related to every other bullet point. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why co-parenting has become an issue for this generation in particular, uh, with the number of women in the workforce, um, the, um, uh, the desire to be your children's friend, decreasing the efficacy of your discipline, for example. Um, and we need to know this population if we're going to be helping them make some of the changes that they need to uh, for their child out to support their child uh, well-being. So, th so this is probably the most important slide I'm going to show you. Um, child outcomes of involved fathering. And I, a little asterisk says biology helps, but does not guarantee, as we know. And this is a summary of about 120 studies that I reviewed, dividing up child outcomes. And again, the science is average at best. Uh, we're not looking at gold standard randomized clinical trials because we haven't been focused on this issue at, the higher, at a high enough level for long enough to be giving you good science. Uh, that's a really important, that's the second caveat I want to highlight. Behavioral, reduce contact with juvenile justice. That might be related to the way fathers tend to discipline. They, if you don't find out where the line is from your dad, because your mom's more interested in the emotional stuff, if you don't find out where the line is, <laughs> you're going to find out from the state police where the line is and um, they care less about you than your dad. And so dads will often get the reputation for being, you know, the yeller, I'm hard on my kids. And, and when you ask them why they're doing that, it's not just because they enjoy being frightening, it's because they think they have a really important job to do in helping their children know what's acceptable, what's not in the world outside of mom. Delay in initial sexual activity, reduce teen pregnancy, incredibly important. Uh, if you've got a mom and a dad who both love you, you're not going to be looking for love in all the wrong places. Reduced rates of divorce, pretty self-explanatory. Less reliance on aggressive 
conflict resolution. Dads and moms teach their children how to manage their aggression slightly differently. Um, and um, the way that those over that the, the way those overlap, moms once again to emphasize the emotional cost of misbehavior, dads more likely to emphasize the real world implication of misbehavior. But by and large, they're both talking about using words, having a conversation that helps you, keeping your hands to yourself, and violence doesn't fix anything. When you hear that message, you're less likely to, to rely on aggressive conflict resolution because you have other problem solving skills. Okay, so I think I have a question about this slide. <laughs> um, uh, less reliance on aggressive conflict resolution as a child outcome of involved fathering. So earlier you were saying that the most important predictor, if I got this right, of involved fathering is the other parent, the mother, for example, mm -hmm. encouragement yes. of the father being involved. So I understand the research may be limited, but this less reliance on aggressive conflict resolution is that about the involvement of the father or about the fact that the father and the other parent, the mother, let's say, are um, really you know, doing pretty well in parenting together? Couldn't tell you, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't tell you. Yeah. I think they're both equally as valid mm -hmm. as Because um, you can't as really separate involved fathering it's, from when there is when there's less conflict in the marriage yeah uh then there's likely to less be less aggression and less conflict yeah in the child's life and there may be less conflict in the marriage exactly. when the father is more involved because it means the other parent like the mother is mothers are the door. universally happy when their dad when their husbands or their partners not only help out but are good at what they do mm -hmm. and admire them for what they're trying to do uh, but that will lead us to a conversation of gatekeeping uh, later on, okay. which is uh, a problem of dosage of mm -hmm. uh, that kind of control. Educational outcomes, higher grade completion and income. Um, the race to the bottom did not have those, those outcomes. Why, do, why, do, why does it engage, engage dad? Wait, are you going to say what you mean by the race to the bottom? Well, um, we had a lot of excitement in some previous administrations about how to the race to the top, how to improve children's function in school. And um, unfortunately, we didn't get higher grade completion and income out of those studies. You do when you positively engage fathers. And that's an important thing for policymakers to be looking at. Um, math competence in girls proven right here at MIT, the class of 1972, first one to admit women as undergraduates, had a very high percentage of engaged fathers. And some of them were not nuclear physicists, they were driving, you know, for the T. And when you have an engaged dad that is proud of all of you, not just your princess qualities, but your mind, your curiosity, and the support that, um, that they give to their daughters, uh, from the beginning helps them stick through those parts of science and STEM that are often less accessible to them. Verbal strengths in boys and girls, and I throw up my hands over that one because we know, as I said, fathers don't talk. Um, emotional, greater problem-solving competence, stress tolerance, greater empathy, moral sensitivity, and reduced gender stereotyping, all extremely positive pro-social outcomes. 
Um, next slide, please. Okay. So going to tease apart Father Ng a little bit more, 38% of children reach the age of 18 living with both biological parents. That's the American dream. And it's never been much higher than that. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, leave it to beaver days. Um, many of the remaining children are fathered by other men in their families or their mother's relationships. And uh, that's extended families. This is different across cultures. Um, that is far more common in Hispanic and Latina populations than it is in African-American, um, where there often is a dearth of men uh, across generations who are involved positively. Um, but we have to stop there and say that is primarily because of institutional systemic racism that leads to the disproportionate incarceration of African-American men in this country. Right? Very well said. Yeah. That's where I was going. Just got to say that. Um, more appropriate to identify them as mother's co-parenting partner rather than that, because those are the ones who are doing the non-mothering nurturing. Um, and then this study, which we already talked about, studies of such families, including those of gay and lesbian couples, uh, show similar dimorphism, um, activation versus soothing, frustrating versus facilitating, good cop, bad cop. Those are the things that we, uh, we were talking about before, Josh, that you said, do you see it? And the answer is absolutely you see it. And um, that reminds us once again about the importance of, of culture and role and expectation. Uh, next slide, please, Kayla. So time to reflect a little bit here. I've been throwing out a lot of things at you, uh, some of which you may be familiar with, some may, may be new to you. And I'm sure you've got some ideas going about fathering, maybe your own experience with your father, which has a very large um, influence over how we define fathering um, for ourselves and for our partners. But these child outcomes are nothing to ignore. And when we aren't positively engaging men, we are missing an opportunity to reach some of these child outcomes. Is your clinical work and your research protocol so informed? Um, is your workplace father-friendly? Would the community agree? Um, they're the ones that matter. Implications for our traditional matricentric attachment focus? I think they're significant. Um, some of my best friends are attachment theorists. Uh, Can you explain later what you mean by matricentric attachment uh, theory? Matricentric attachment focus. Um, Attachment focus is focused on mother and child relationships. And um, it has been for a long time and has led us into some really wonderful, fruitful discussions and some clinical behavior. But it has also um, had the unfortunate, unintended consequence of marginalizing the father's relationship with his own baby. And um, so I think that um, to switch your focus away from um, the attachment grounding therapeutic interventions that we have to paternal engagement is a disruption of most of our work routines and habits. And I want you to think for a moment about whether it looks like it's worth it. Then you can ask the kids if you think it might be worth it, which is what Barry would be asking us to do. Next slide, please. 
Uh, here's the data, comparison of attachment to fathers versus attachment to mothers that came from the work of Phil and Carolyn Cowan at, at Berkeley, um, who are my close, uh, Marsha's and my close research collaborators in another project, which I'll tell you about at the end of the presentation. Um, attachment relationship to fathers differ from attachment relationships to mothers. Secure attachment to mother provides comfort when the child is distressed. That's what it's about. Secure base. Uh, you'll find me when you're upset. I'm your person. Father provides security during monitored, controlled excitement through sensitive and challenging support when exploratory systems are aroused. That's how you find out where the line is. You go put your toes up to it, you lean over and see who reacts. I had a lovely example of this. I was working in the Middle East with uh, some families, some couples from uh, the United Arab Emirates and a uh, father described how when he got home, his, um, his, his toddler would come up and grab his robes and pull him onto the ground and they would be rolling around and playing and then he'd get his fingers into his father's beard and just pull and the father would kind of laugh and say, yeah, well, and then the toddler would look at the father's reaction. Then he'd pull a little harder. The father would, then finally the father said, the third time he pulled too hard and I sent him to the corner. And it looked like he was going to cry and he wanted to come back. But I had to tell him that it hurt. And if I'm not gonna tell him that, who's gonna tell him? Who loves him enough to tell him that that hurt and he can't do it? And um, so the toddler settled down, tears dried up, came back, played with the father. And of course, you know exactly what happened. He did it one more time. And the father, this time, sent him to the corner and said, we don't need to do this anymore. I'm going to get up. But I want you to remember, that hurt. Um, so remember those statistics on juvenile justice and uh, the numbers of fatherless um, uh, boys and girls who are incarcerated in this country. Uh, that's not just a casual relationship. Uh, the absence of this kind of experience, I think, is borne very heavily, uh, particularly by adolescent populations. And besides, attachments are formed by children with multiple relationships in their lives. It's not just the mother, their grandparents, their siblings. And so I think we've we've put a little too many eggs in the attachment basket for us to really understand how children relate to their families. Um, and that was something I learned in my work as in, uh, in, in when I was working with infants and toddlers. Kayla, thank you. Well, next slide, please. We're running out of time and I wanna make sure we have, um, um, I'm going to share with you something from the Fragile Family Study. I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but it's the largest, most reputable, high-quality study ever done of unmarried couples who are having babies. And uh, it was funded by the Ford Foundation and just about as classy as, as science as you can get. And um, large proportion of African-American families, but there were also Hispanic and um, also some Anglo families as well. 82% of unmarried mothers say when they are having their babies, they are romantically involved with the father at the birth. Half of those are cohabitating. A third of those romantically involved are living apart. 
visiting, especially among the African-American population, only 10% had little or no contact. Okay, that is, that is against what most of us have in our heads about this population. Most of us have in our heads, these men are gone. They're onto another relationship. That's not what the fragile family showed us. That this can start off in a way where there are relationships that could be sustained with support. Majority of unmarried fathers value marriage, expect it, want to be involved dads around the time of the birth. So when you say, when you say most of us, you're talking about researchers who are mostly white, who have assumptions looking from the outside in when you say most of us. And uh, people who are, um, have their own lived experience um, are seeing a different reality. And that's the one that the study was able to get at that probably surprised the white researchers. I think that's fair, Josh. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons I love the study mm. is because it's kind of in your face and um, in, a, in a way that opens, I think, some doors for opportunity. 99% of the unmarried moms and married dads want people to know uh, that I have a new child. Okay, pride. Five years later, 15, 70% of them are married, 20% of them are cohabitating, 3% are romantically involved, 20% are friends, and 42% have no relationship. In other words, they have um, taken a what looked like a pretty good start and through all manner of, of uh, economic, social, um, uh, and other interveners, that opportunity to stay, uh, I want to be an involved dad, um, I value marriage, I want people to know I have a new child. Without support, this is the typical direction of this population. And in fact, there are policies that push things. In this exactly, too. exactly. Yeah. So I'm putting, I'm talking about this study because um, it, it is about paternal engagement. There was no active support for paternal engagement in this. This was not an intervention study. It was a what's going on in this population study. We have enough information now from things like Early Head Start and other intervening studies that if you do support these men and their partners, to stay involved with their babies. Uh, an awful lot of them make it through this very difficult and tough time, but it's expensive and it's problematic because it's not where we start. Next slide, please. Um, Same-sex couples and co-parenting. Josh, we talked a little bit about this, but there are some interesting differences and this is from the work of Charlotte Patterson and, uh, and Ruth Feldman separately, uh, Ruth working with gay uh, couples, uh, Pat, uh, Charlotte working with lesbian pairs. Compared to heterosexual couples, gay and lesbian pairs more evenly divide child labor. There's less specialization and there's more, there's more balanced division. So that generally leads to less conflict uh, in the couple. Makes sense. Um, it's not the sharing, it's the satisfaction with the arrangement that matters for both same sex and hetero couples. Uh, so it's, it's useless to talk about 50-50 parenting. It, what we need to be talking about is the satisfaction with the arrangement and speak up if you think this is unfair and how can we make it fair. Family interactions, gay and lesbians participate more equally. Lesbians are more supportive, pleasure, warmth, interactive and less undermining of their partners. 
heterosexuals intermediate insupportiveness and more undermining of their partners and gays uh, tend to be less supportive. Heterosexual couples show more anger, irritability than the other two family types combined. Supportive and undermining behaviors related to child externalizing problems in all families. So the last two are not surprising. But some of the others are really important for us, us to understand uh, about the sources of strength in these families uh, and how the dimorphism that we talked about earlier uh, is a way of not only benefiting child outcomes, but benefiting the relationship. Um, and I don't think we have the science to sort of say why uh, these relationships exist in this way, but it's a start to even find out that they do. Next slide, please. Um, okay, my last, how are we doing on time, Josh? We got 10 minutes. Okay. And we got a couple questions. Okay, good. Um, then I'll make this quick. Evidence based for improved outcomes for at risk children with engaged fathers. And by at risk children, I mean children who are in families that are contextually challenged, poverty, uh, substance abuse in the parents, mental illness in the family as a whole. Uh, they're not necessarily born that way, but it is the context in which they're being raised. Um, Marsha and I and the Cowans were approached years ago by the Office of Child Abuse Prevention in the state of California, not the federal government, to try to examine and investigate an idea that occurred to them from the work that I was doing, that Marsha was doing at the time, about the, the director of the program said, I'm about ready to retire. I have watched the state of California spend $35 million on intervention programs with abuse and neglect families. And we have not changed the training of one child welfare worker. I think I see some things in your ideas that might challenge that. And 11,000, 1100 families um, later uh, with toddlers and preschoolers um, and a preventive intervention, um, we can say that Conrad was right. We did change some things don't have time to go into it in great detail. I'll show you a few slides. But the child outcomes in this abuse and neglect prevention research are very substantial. The risk factors for abuse and neglect in the couples, such as depression, anger, violent problem solving, substance abuse, all go down. We had three conditions. We had a control condition where we just gave information. We had a 16-week curriculum for given to fathers primarily, and a 16-week program, same curriculum, same group leaders, given to couples primarily. And to cut to the chase, I will simply tell you, next slide. Um, that the couples groups were far superior to the fathers groups in increasing father involvement and the lack of increase in the child's problem behaviors. And this answered a question which had been unanswered until this study, which was many people have felt that only fathers could work with other fathers and that you couldn't engage the mothers because the mothers would consume all the work since they need it and they're held responsible all the time. Um, so um, we, bottom line, 
the most substantial enduring effects were seen in the couples groups. Things changed for the better for the father's group, but they were less dramatic. Parenting stress, one of the great predictors in child abuse, controls, stayed the same father's group. Next slide, I punch it again. Father's group, couples group, goes down. Parenting stress, stayed the same in the father's group and control. And when you think about it, yeah, that kind of makes sense. If you're gonna be talking with her about him and him about her and how they're really trying to raise this child, you're gonna be able to affect stress. If you just talk to him about it, you might make him feel a little better about being a dad for a few weeks, but it's not gonna change the level of stress in his relationship. Next slide. Couple relationship distress. Controls goes up, fathers it goes up, and couples it stays the same and does not worsen. Um, next slide. So equally effective, low income, higher income participants. We had some middle class. This, uh, this has been done in California. It's also being done in the United Kingdom. And in Canada, we had some middle class families uh, engaged in Canada. Just as effective for lower income and higher income, African-American, Mexican-American, Native American, First Nations, Anglo participants, a lot of cultural diversity affected by the same curriculum. Um, one of the things we sometimes had to change was the activities in the curriculum. But the seminal components of the curriculum, which weren't rocket science there, how do you feel about raising your child versus the way you were felt? How do you deal with discipline? What about co-sleeping? What do you know about um, uh, substance abuse? Or, um, how are you sharing the workload? Um, those kinds of things were discussed in a group, six other couples with a trained and skilled uh, co-facilitators. Co so we use the group process to normalize human experience and reduce all the conflict. Married cohabitating couples, more or less depressed parents, and more or less happy with the couple relationship parents. We also did a study with a, a DCF population that were not actively reported, but we, it was turned out, it turned that even with that high, even with the families that were in that much trouble uh, with each other, this curriculum turned out to be very effective in lowering their abuse, neglect, risk for subsequent children. Okay, next slide. Positive benefits, next slide. And I think we're done. Yes, we are. That's a great place to end. Um, so we, we have a number of questions. I wondered first if you could talk a little bit about the supporting father involvement uh, work that you just described to say a little bit more about what you think the active ingredients in the group were. You talked about group process, you talked about normalizing the experience, um, and it sounded like there was also helping couples have productive conversations about things that are pretty common to have struggles over. And also if you could talk about um, using this approach with um, uh, parents who are co-parenting, but who aren't um, living together or romantically involved. We had a significant number of non-cohabitating parents in the study. What they had in common was that they wanted to do a better job with their child. And um, they were admitted in this study. The first, the first time we did this study in order to get it to prove that we were doing something, we, they were all biological. Uh, all the other three segments, that was not required. Um, so I think the secret sauce uh, of, of the intervention is divided between two components. One is 
the use of groups where you are able to talk about the issues that um, that worry you and that that kind of scare you about uh, not doing a good job with your kids or making some of the mistakes your parents made, you know, with you. When you talk about that with your with peers and colleagues, uh, it has a normalizing effect. We've all been there. We're close to it. We may not be in that deep a hole, but we're in our own hole. And um, the the facilitation of the of the of the groups is constantly directed toward bringing out strengths. Mm -hmm. So I think the combination of the group and the emphasis on co-parenting, um, and I, I think that's one of the things I worry most about, is that um, people and institutions that consider themselves to be father friendly are trying to put the dad in their own silo and get a father engagement specialist and go work with the dads. Um, you know, <laughs> keep them out of here, <laughs> go work with the dads. The dads need to be brought in, the mothers need to be brought in. We have a mindset that is desperately out of sync with our children's mindsets about who their dads are in their lives, desperately. And we've been institutionally twisted in that direction. You know, the Obama and Bush administration spent tens of millions of dollars on responsible fathering programs and didn't move the needle because they didn't work with the mothers. And with the relationship. Between or the, the relationship. Mothers, yeah. uh, they talked about it, but they were never brought in. And um, gosh, I don't know about you, but I hate to see my tax money wasted. <laughs> and I, I think we now know that there are better ways to manage our resources Getting back to the workforce and what's in our own heads, I think um, we changed the, 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 the institutions that delivered this service uh, thought of themselves originally as father friendly. They weren't remotely father friendly compared to where they were after working with this series of, of fathers for years. Because the predisposition in most of the workers in the field is that the mother needs all the help she can get and the father is a dilution of that help. He's not a support. He's a distraction. He does it differently. He's too rough with the children. He doesn't know how to diaper them. The clothes are always dirty. He keeps them up too late. Um, children, on the other hand, will tell you, I love that he's different. I, I, I thrive on novelty. You know, he smells different. He holds me different. He dresses me different. He feeds me different. And I, I think when we make the mistake of saying there's one right way and one wrong way and you're wrong, we keep marginalizing the fathers. And um, I don't think that's what the mothers want. I think they want those men right next to them with all the support that they can get from them. Um, our institutions need to carefully examine our reluctance and resistance. Everything from intake to when the father doesn't show up, do you call him or do you go ahead and meet with the mother? You ask the mother to bring the child, the father in, instead of you reaching to the father and saying, we want you, you have special things to give this kid. And, um, and that's why I'm calling you. Uh, and our expectations shouldn't be lower for the father than they are for the mother. We're letting our children down and you can forget those child outcomes uh, that you saw on this slide. So Kyle, do you have another 10 or 15 minutes? 
because <laughs> we got a lot of questions. I want to um, say goodbye to everybody who's going to go, but if you can hang around for a little bit and people have asked their questions. I can hang around okay. for a little bit. So, um, first I want to thank this, you. The Kyle. same rate applies. <laughs> I want to thank you, Kyle, um, for um, being with us and um, shedding your light on um, fathers and their relationships with their children. Oh, thank and, you, Josh. Uh, it's been a privilege. I also want to thank our production team, um, Kayla Savelli, Michael Cardi, and Susan Okasik. And I want to thank again our sponsors, the Burke Foundation, First Five Santa Clara, and Mitchell Gold and Bob William Home Furnishings, and contributions from friends and colleagues like all of you. Thank you all for joining us. Please uh, hang out uh, for 10 or 15 more minutes, still some questions if you can. And you can find this episode of Going to Listen on the Browson Touchpoint Center Facebook page and our YouTube channel and at the Browson Touchpoint Center's website, browsontouchpoints.org. Please join us again this spring as Learning to Listen Conversations for Change continues into 2020. So now to our questions. There were really a lot of fascinating questions. Um, one of them was about the, the um, supporting father involvement study. Uh, what age were the children um, when the curriculum was being delivered? Uh, they had to have a child that was two years of age, at least one. <laughs> uh, many of them had older children. Many of them um, uh, had children by other partners. Um, uh, but we, um, I will say, this was an argument I won. Um, my colleagues, uh, in, including my wife, were interested in working with older children because you could study them a little more easily. And I, uh, with Barry Brasselton screaming in my ear, said, why would you pass up the opportunity to change as early as you can in the positive direction, not only for this child, but for subsequent children? And uh, that argument did hold the day. And so, um, you know, I would rather have had infants, but I, but two, two years, three months was the average age at which the, uh, uh, the, the families entered the, entered the program. Well, that, that leads to another question, which was, uh, what about the role of fathers at birth? There is the expectation for them to be present at the birth, but not clear about what their role is. It's a great time for the father to know his own value as the co-parent and to claim that. Who's not clear about what their role is? <laughs> I think the question um, doesn't quite specify it. Okay. There is the expectation for them to be present at the birth, but not clear. Yeah, I don't think it's clear who the subject there is. Yeah. Well, I, I could guess, um, <laughs> having been one of those guys myself. Mm -hmm. um, the expectation of paternal engagement varies hugely across culture and economics and medical centers. Um, the, um, the best chance it has of succeeding is if the person delivering the baby and um, uh, the, ha, knows the father and the mother and that the father has had a chance to be sort of prepared, not unlike the mother, for what is going to be a painful and exhilarating experience. It's gonna go on for hours and you need to be there and um, we'll support you and help you. Um, but, uh, and we need you right there uh, when the baby is delivered um, because the, we're going to be attending to the mother in her medical status. Um, and we can put the mother, we can put the baby on the mother's breast and then we can put the baby on your chest or how would you, we could do that 
either way and we'll support you in doing it. We'll show you how to do it. Or we could even show you how to grease up the baby after the baby's been washed down. And we're in no hurry to get you out of here because these are moments that will last in your body and your brain and mind forever because that biological window is open really wide right now. So we wanna get as much good stuff through there as we can because it protects against all the trouble stuff that's gonna come later. So it takes a partnership between the nurses, the midwives, the OBs, um, uh, and the mother uh, and uh, the other supporters. When the father doesn't show up for the, the prenatal classes, does he get called? Um, or does he, do they just roll their eyes and say, yeah, men don't like this stuff, they don't come. And I think that's where you initially set the tone. And if you don't call him, then you've delivered a mother message to the mother. Ah, yes, you're right. It's all up to you, and he's not going to be a he's not going to be a fan. So, bad message. So here's another one. I work in a home visiting program for teenage mothers involved with the juvenile justice system. Are you aware of any nuance to working with teenage fathers, say ages 13 to 19? Am I aware of any what nuance? with regard to working with teenage fathers, ages 13 to 19? Um, nuance is a very fancy word for <laughs> it's profoundly different, hmm. okay? So uh, we, have had a, a, we have had a, um, we ran an SFI program with teen fathers in Hartford, Connecticut. So SFI is supporting father and fathers. Supporting father and father. And by the way, people want the curriculum for that. <laughs> uh, and resources and references, just to let you know. Uh, it was on the website and- um, We'll put it back up there. We'll put it back up there, but there are trainings and supervision and et cetera that go along with the curriculum uh, because of fidelity to the model and making sure that it's used appropriately and well. But um, just if you wanna leave some information about it, somebody will get back to you. Um, so, oh yes, the teen father in 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 uh, Hartford. In Hartford, um, the 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 developmental status of these teen fathers is um, often quite regressed because they are living with um, an impulsivity that has really run their lives, and often they have not had good parenting themselves, and very few boundaries have been set with them. And so the idea that they could have a positive relationship with the mother of the child, whose, whose own mother, by the way, the grandmother, almost never wants to have these young men in their lives. They're just as happy to be gotten rid of. So the, 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 um, when we did run the program, we found that we were spending far more time, we were trying to get co-parenting uh, involved. We tried to get the mothers involved, but generally the fathers were so needy themselves that the fathers were the ones doing the gatekeeping. They wanted all the, uh, the support and the group uh, uh, support for themselves. That doesn't mean you should, you should not try. <laughs> it does mean that, um, that if you are going to run for, for example, you know, in the teenage, in the, in the shelter population, safety first, safety first, safety first. And, um, um, but one of the things that does happen in shelter populations, even when the fathers are seen as safe, 
is that the culture of the shelter is so anti-father and anti-male that, that a father, even when he wanted to try, wouldn't have a prayer of succeeding in even visiting his child while the mother's in the shelter, um, even in the absence of domestic violence. So I think, um, you know, Dr. Sparrow is often talk, fond of talking about mindsets. And I think the mindset of the people in the shelter is one that these children and their mothers need protection from, and it's usually a male component. Um, uh, does that mean the child should lose the opportunity to be connected with a non-battering or non-threatening father? That's a tough one. So here's, we've got so many of them, we won't be able to get to all of them, but here's another one. U.S. culture seems to marginalize fathers in the court system and child welfare system and has done so forever. Will this knowledge make a change, make a difference in the way fathers are perceived in our culture and in the child welfare system? Um, I hope that person is an optimist. Um, um, my wife, Marcia, has done some work with the courts in Massachusetts and Connecticut using some of the lessons learned from um, SFI and has had quite a significant influence on the jurists, on the lawyers, and primarily the judges who are hearing these cases. And it's been more positive than negative, but it's just a start. And I, I do believe that to give a little bit more knowledge and information to the, the, the judges who have to sit in family courts, they're very hungry for it. And if they're, if they're not negatively predisposed, they are generally likely to move in the direction of giving the father at least a more, um, uh, uh, a little bit more equanimity when it comes to hearing what his position is and what he thinks he might be able to bring to that child, rather than simply assuming he's you know, a deadbeat loser who won't pay child support. That's the mindset. Uh, that we're, we're trying to affect with this science. And we've had some progress. Colorado um, and so other states have moved to systems of uh, decision-making after divorce that have allowed more fathers to feel more success. Um, that's not true across the country. And um, there's a lot of very strong feeling about paternal engagement in some parts of the country that has not gone very well politically for the people who have supported it. So here's another one, Kyle. Is there any validated measure to capture fathering constructs for young children and fathers? Yes. <laughs> yeah, actually there are quite a few. Um, and there's a new book coming out at Hiram Fitzgerald of the um, World Association for Infant Mental Health. Um, has collected about 36 chapters. Marsha and I have one of them in there, in which there are a number of measures that will be uh, will be talked about. But there, there are a number of there are a number of, that are already out there, um, and I would encourage you, um, in in terms of resources, um, let me say this: there are an awful lot of them out there. Very few of them have been validated. That's the problem. Um, 
There are some interesting tools available uh, through the National Fatherhood Initiative, NFI, that I think can be helpful to individual uh, clinics and institutions to examine how far down this father engagement road they'd like to go. That's a good starting place. Okay, so just a couple more. Thank you. So hi, Fitzgerald is editing a book. He's at Michigan State University. We'll be talking about health and it's and coming it out will, next year. Sometime. It will be out uh, in a year. Springer is the publisher. So just a couple more. Um, what's the effect of the father's presence at birth on infant mortality rates? Oh, it's significant. Um, and um, uh, the numbers escape me right now, but that was research that we we were doing in the in, in in not not myself, but in the late '80s. That if the father is present, the mother tends to require less anesthesia. There are fewer birth complications. Um, she's actually um, less likely to get an episiotomy, and um, you know how is that not all to the good? Um, and, um, oh, if the child is, um, this is work done by Worrell and Gator, G-A-I-T-E-R, again, in the early 1980s, where she looked at babies who were, uh, they weren't super preemies, but they were, they were preemie preemies, um, two and a half pounds. And um, when the fathers came to visit those babies, and the father would reach through the isolate and touch the baby with just two fingers, the way he was taught, um, those babies left the hospital sooner and fatter. I think that's a great place to end. There um, are many more questions that we won't get to. Um, um, thank you so much, Kyle. I'm sure some of the answers um, will be found in the resources and references that we will um, put on our website with your help, Kyle. Well, I, it is frustrating not to be able to get to all the because we've been dying to get people thinking about this for how many decades? And when you finally get them, you don't want to let go of them. Thank you, yeah. Josh. Well, we hope we can um, hold on to everybody um, and okay, continue this good work together. Thank you so much, Kyle. Thank, Thank you, you all Josh. for joining us. Thank you, okay. Kayla, Savelli, Suzanne Okasik, and Michael Cardi for making this all happen. And thanks to our sponsors, the Park Foundation, First by Santa Clara, and Mitchell Golden, Bob Williams, Tom Kirschman's. And please come back for the spring of 2020, Learning to Listen. Bye, everybody.